Another status hearing in the Lori Vallow Chad Daybell matter. Alec Murdoch's defense team continues with their case in chief. Brian Koberger wants everything secret as well. Welcome to Idaho. Kids speak the truth. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment and hit that little bell so you receive notifications when we go live or put up new content. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in Crime Talk. Now, let's support the people that support Crime Talk. Go to crimetalksearch.com. Sign up for that background subscription service today. When you have that background subscription service, you can conduct as many background searches as you desire while you have that subscription. Remember, you can cancel at any time. The search is done literally while you wait. The report is generated and sent to you while you wait. And you're going to get information as to whether somebody has a criminal history. Are they on a registry? Are they married? Are they divorced? Do they have judgments against them? Do they own property? Anything about them, you're going to be able to find out. Frankly, you're going to be surprised at some of the things you're going to be able to find out. Go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the record and uh, let's start the docket for Monday, February 27th, 2023. First on the docket, there is another status conference in the Lori Vallow Chad Day Bell Matters. Yes, they seem to be set sporadically. It's not videotaped. Yes, there's audio to it, so we'll have to wait and see. My guess is nothing of substance is going to take place. If it does, it will more than likely take place in chambers because that's apparently the way things are done in Idaho, where you can conduct hearings in chambers so that the public cannot have access to it. Unbelievable to me, but that's what they're doing. Everyone should be outraged and concerned because, you know, that's kind of what they do in those communist countries, you know, where despots and dictators rule. They just do everything out in the chambers so that it's not done in public where everybody can see it. Anyway, we'll let you know. Next on the docket, day 25 of the Alec Murdoch trial. And we have brought you we have brought you coverage from the uh, beginning and we'll continue to bring it to you to the end. Now, the defense has called at least two of their, I believe, four witnesses they're going to call today. Then the prosecution will have to call witnesses if they choose to do so. I believe there's an indication they're going to call four witnesses in rebuttal. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be witnesses to say that um, Alec Murdoch said this and therefore he is a liar. Kind of, you got to get a certain point where it's like, is this really necessary? Really, it's going to be, I think, important witnesses would be rebuttal uh, witnesses that attack the expert witnesses as it relates to the defense. So let's talk about what took place today. First, guess what? Um, Alec Murdoch's attorneys uh, specifically asked the judge, Judge Newman, if the jury might be allowed to go visit the Moselle property where obviously the murders of Paul and Maggie took place. Now, Mr. Harptulian said that the jury should be given the choice if they wish to get a better view of the murder scene. He suggested a jury vote. Now, the prosecutor, Mr. Waters, uh, argued against the visit, arguing that the property has changed since the homicides. But obviously, that can be explained to them. Judge Newman said he will, in fact, 
allow a visit. Now, Harptulian asked for enhanced security, and he mentioned that John Marvin Murdoch's uh, brother had to call the sheriffs after the people trespassed on the property to take photos, calling it a carnival attitude. So that's going to be interesting. Um, I've never seen anything like this. Very must be relaxed rules in South Carolina where we can just pack the jury up and go take a look at the crime scene. Uh, I've never done it. Only planned for it once, and the judge put a kibosh to that uh, so we didn't get to go. We spent a lot of time coordinating buses and things of that nature. So um, let's go on a field trip. That's all I have to say. Obviously, it will include the jury, the judge, the attorneys, and the judge did comment on the sheer number of attorneys for both sides. And um, Alec Murdoch should be allowed to be there as well. It's um, just when you thought this case is going to end, it just keeps going. Although it's not as ridiculous as the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, at some point, though, I think the jury gets it. They need to decide this case soon. Let's get to it, ladies and gentlemen. So what did they do today? Well, uh, Mr. Harptulian called Dr. Jonathan Eisenstadt. He's a forensic pathologist, and he was called to testify as a defense expert witness. Dr. Eisenstadt's primary disagreement with the earlier testimony from the state's forensic pathologist expert, Dr. Ellen Reimer, was that he found Paul Murdoch was likely killed with a contact shotgun blast, meaning the gun barrel was pressed directly against his head. Now, the uh, good doctor said that he believed Paul Murdoch was killed by a contact gunshot wound to the head, means the barrel was pressed right up against it. And Eisenstadt also said that he believes the gunshot traveled through the top of Murdoch's head and downward, while Reimer's report indicates that the shot traveled upward. Um, specifically up Murdoch's shoulder and out of the top of the skull. Now, early in cross-examination, uh, prosecutor uh, Savannah Goud uh, moved to undercut the authority of Eisenstadt's testimony. Uh, Ms. Goud asked if uh, Eisenstadt had visited the crime scene, conducted an independent autopsy of Maggie or Paul, or created a report on his findings if he had. Eisenstadt's uh, findings dispute those, obviously, the state's uh, own expert, Dr. Uh, Reimer, uh, but he had not uh, conducted his own autopsy. Dr. Reimer found that the shotgun blast traveled up through Paul's head from about three feet away. Eisenstadt said he finds it uh, likely the gun was fired from an extremely close range at the top of the skull and traveled downward. Um, there was also information as it relates to time of death. Uh, Dr. Eisenstadt said the techniques used to determine the temperature of Maggie and Paul Murdoch's bodies at the crime scene gave little to no information about their actual time of death. He stated to determine a body's temperature accurately uh, usually requires the use of a rectal thermometer to gauge the body's core temperature and other thermometers to determine temperature around the bodies. That's the ambient temperature. Now, the Colton County coroner, Richard Harvey, testified last week for the defense that he did not use a rectal thermometer to make his time of death estimate when he arrived at Moselle. He tucked his hand under the body's armpit, is what he testified to, and estimated the time of death for each to be about 9 p.m., though it could have varied by about an hour earlier or later, according to his testimony. Eisenstadt said a coroner would learn nothing from that method since the temperature would be affected by their own body heat and the environmental temperatures. Now, the defense has also called Timothy Palmbach, a forensic scientist and instructor 
at Connecticut's University of New Haven. Paul Beck said he has background in crime scene reconstruction and blood spatter analysis. Now, Mr. Griffin for Mr. Murdoch asked Mr. Palmback how much blood one would expect the shooter to have on them after the execution style shot. Palmback responded, a lot. The defense again is drawing jurors attention to the fact that Alec Murdoch's clothes seized by sled ultimately tested negative for blood despite the state grand jury being told that his t-shirt had traces of high velocity blood spatter. No blood was found on any of Murdoch's body, uh, clothes, or skin. Prosecutors have hinted Murdoch could have rinsed himself off after the killings and disposed of the clothing that he had worn that evening. It's probably the least of his worries, but accused uh, double uh, murderer uh, Alec Murdoch was charged with another crime in Colton County on Friday. That's right. The Colton County sheriffs issued a misdemeanor arrest warrant for the defendant on February 24th. And there's been no confirmation, um, but it is a lot of speculation that he took something from the courtroom. It turned out he took a book. That's right, a book that he shouldn't have had, and he was charged. It's called Introduction of Contraband, ladies and gentlemen. When it rains, it pours, although the least of his concerns, I assure you of that. Next on the docket, Brian Koberger. Yep, wants everything done in secret as well. I don't get it. Anyway, the court in uh, Idaho, as it relates to Brian Koberger, has agreed to seal uh, some exhibits that were filed by Mr. Koberger. What we know is that the court um, had a quick hearing. Of course, it um, was done via Zoom, and we all didn't know about it in the public. And this hearing was on February 10th, and there was a stipulation to file Defendant's Exhibit A, which we don't know what it is, to the defendant's uh, supplemental request for discovery under seal. Like I said, the hearing was held via Zoom with William W. Thompson Jr. and Ashley Jennings appearing on behalf of the state and Taylor appeared on behalf of Mr. Koberger. The court reviewed the stipulation, considered the arguments presented, weighed the interest of privacy and the public disclosure and announced its findings of fact on the record on the Zoom call that no one else was able to do. And therefore, pursuant to the Idaho um, Rules 32, I, 2, D, and E, just like they do in the Lori Vallow matter, the court finds it necessary to seal Exhibit A because the documents contain facts or statements that might threaten or endanger the life of safety of individuals. Really? And it's necessary to preserve the rights of a fair trial. And the disclosure would constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. Okay. Once again, let's just keep doing it all in secret. You know, if one thing uh, I think uh, COVID revealed for everybody, people, is that um, it revealed, you know, kind of like when you walk to the top of the stairs and you're winded. It wasn't that you just suddenly became out of shape, but that it was revealed to you that you are out of shape, right? And um, what I think COVID revealed is that uh, they can do whatever they want, the government, uh, the courts twisted and bend their rules as it relates to speedy trial, and they think that they can do whatever they want, and they don't even provide a mechanism to challenge it like they do in Idaho, for example. Um, So if you think you got any power, you think they aren't controlling everything that they want, and they just think they're going to do it, the government can. A little bit of a sidetrack there, but 
God, it's frustrating. We are citizens of the United States. We should have access to all public court files. Sure, if there's going to be, I don't know, psychological medical records, I get that. Maybe your financial filings as it relates to the IRS uh, in a divorce proceeding. I get that should be sealed. Everything else should be open to the public. Next on the docket, kids tell the truth. Uh, Police were pretty sure they knew where to find a uh, woman by the name of Tina Hicks. She was wanted on a uh, warrant for possession of methamphetamine and drug paraphernalia and a sundry of other charges. But when they arrived at the Williamsburg, Kentucky location where they thought that she would be to serve the warrants, the adults in the house uh, just couldn't say uh, whether uh, she was there or not. They didn't know no nothing about no nothing. Anyway, while the Williamsburg officers and the Whitley County Sheriff deputies paused to consider their next step, they got a big break from an uninspected source. A toddler suddenly stood up, put his hands on his hips, and the sheriff's department said, the kid stated, it's good to be honest, the young toddler announced. We shouldn't lie. She is inside the room next to the bathroom. Guess what? The officers immediately checked the spot where the uh, very brave young toddler indicated, and sure enough, they found Tina Hicks. Hicks was taken into custody, and um, the police noted that, that they commended the toddler for his integrity and his service to the community before the officers left the scene. That's kind of a nice little story there, isn't it? I wonder where the kid learned those things. I doubt it was for Miss Hicks. Just going to say that. Anyway, finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Yes, in a harebrained scheme destined to fail, a Florida woman thought she could uh, game a court-ordered urinalysis test with a pill container filled with soda and tap water. How did we get here? Well, as a result of a guilty plea last month to a pair of felony charges, Shannon Hunter was required to provide officials in Clearwater with a urine sample. It's called a UA, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Ms. Hunter, who'd recently copped to possessing painkillers without a prescription and thefts counts, apparently knew her urine would prove to be dirty. A hot UA. So she attempted to use a prescription pill container full of an unknown liquid to pass her urinalysis. The scheme, which involved hunters hiding the pill container inside of herself, well, anyway, it was detected by probation officials familiar with the popular container Gambit. Usually, such a container will hold synthetic urine uh, sourced online or pee provided to the probationer by an acquaintance. After being read her rights, Ms. Hunter, however, admitted that the liquid in her plastic container was just soda and tap water, a concoction that uh, would have resulted in a failed test because there was no actual human urine. While court records do not identify the soda involved, either Sprite or Mountain Dew would probably be a good bet. And it is unclear why Ms. Hunter thought submitting a urine sample containing no urine was a wise choice. During a court appearance, Ms. Hunter pled no contest to a misdemeanor charge of urinalysis fraud. She was sentenced to the maximum of 20 days jail and was ordered to pay fines in the amount of $500, which I'm sure she would not pay. Unfamiliar with this method? Hmm. Let me take you a little stroll down memory lane, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it's called the great whizinator. Okay. Had many clients over the years that get caught with a whizinator. What is the whizinator? Well, guess what? You can order the whizinator and it is a prosthetic 
with a silent valve technology, refillable vinyl pouch with a non-spill refill port, one golden shower synthetic urine sample, four heat pads to heat fluids up to 98.6 degrees, and one syringe instructional manual. That's right. Take a check out the Wizinator. We'll probably have to block out the prosthetic part, but you know what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So, Ms. Hunter, next time, go with the Wizinator. You didn't, so now you are a dumb criminal of the day. All right, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.